Well, as you think about the world, as you think about the day in which we live, the culture in which we live, any culture for that matter, we live in a day where there are often multiple crises. I mean, just think about the ones that are prominent. Ebola, right? All I have to say is everybody's like, oh, you know, I wash my hand, I have Germex, handy. I mean, it, it, you think about the Ebola crisis. There's something about that, that that puts us on edge, and it's certainly impacted. It's a terrible thing. It's impacted thousands and thousands of people and thousands of families, and certainly something that we ought to be concerned about and, and prayerful over. You think about other crises in the world. You, you think about the ongoing issue of terrorism. All I have to do is say ISIS and, again, you know, puts many people on the defense mode. And, and many times we, we think, well, when's the next attack going to be in our homeland? How is this going to pan out in the end? Who's next? Yet another crisis. Just think about the educational crisis in our nation. Just this past week or a week before last, a, a, a school district in Nebraska now encouraging their teachers not to refer to their children in their classes by gender. I mean, we could go on and on. There's the ongoing issue of a nation that struggles greatly with racism. And I know all of us white people think, well, we've moved beyond that, haven't we? No, we haven't. We still have a great, deep-rooted issue in our nation that we have to learn to press through and heal and find reconciliation with, with our brothers and sisters who aren't like us. That's a crisis. It's an ongoing crisis. I could just go down the list, crisis after crisis after crisis. The issue of marriage in our country, again, state by state, just like the dominoes going down throughout, uh, state after state, endorsing and embracing the issue of homosexual marriage. And I could just keep going. I could spend our 30 minutes, you say you preach 45, however long I preach, I could just spend naming crisis after crisis after crisis. And I would ask you this morning, if you could define what the greatest crisis we face is, what would you say? Cool, you're talking back. That's pretty awesome. There, I mean, we would... We would we would think about this and we would think, well, these are the greatest crisis. And, and you, could, you could make an argument that all of these things that I mentioned are indeed great crises, crises that we face. But I would propose to you that Ebola, ISIS, redefinition of marriage, the confusion in our education system, racism, none of those, as bad as they are and as difficult as they are, none of those are our greatest crisis. And I would actually say this this morning. Do you know what our greatest crisis is? This is our greatest crisis. The fact that God is holy. You say, what do you mean? You're attacking God. No, I'm not attacking God. This is not an indictment on God. It's an indictment on us. Your greatest crisis and my greatest crisis is not a disease and it's not a threat from our outside, but rather our greatest crisis is the fact that God is holy and we as sinners must give account to him. That's a crisis. Not on God's end, but on our end. So the question we must answer well, is there a way for us to avoid that crisis? 
If God is holy and that's a problem, you say, why is that a problem if God is holy? Well, the problem is, is because we are not holy. We are stained and marred by the effects of sin, and we now live in a cursed world, and as sinners must give account to a holy God who demands nothing but perfection and holiness, will not allow sin in his presence. That's a crisis. That's a problem. And that's why it's a significant crisis for you and for me. You say, well, how do we avoid this crisis? Well, there is a way. The easy answer is Jesus, right? Indeed, that's the answer. Jesus is the way by which we avoid this crisis of standing before a holy God. As we draw near to finishing our series on the Apostles' Creed, we come to the simple but powerful statements in that creed that simply says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. This is a simple statement that has profound implications when you consider what we are affirming. We are affirming the fact that even though as sinners, even though as sinners we must stand before a holy God and give account there is actually a way for us to stand before this holy God and be welcomed, to be accepted, to be reconciled. And that is good news for you and for me. And that is good news for Sean people, and that is good news for Sudanese people. That is good news for Texans, and that is good news for Tennesseans. That is good news for white people, that is good news for black people, and that is good news for everyone in between. It is good news, friends, because God is holy, we are sinners, and he has provided a means by which you can be reconciled with him. So, because there is this universal need of forgiveness, There are two facts that we should consider about that this morning from our text, Luke chapter 24. We know that the context is Jesus, this is after he engaged the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's always a great story to read as they're walking along discussing the events that have happened and Jesus comes up and they immediately don't recognize him because he sort of veiled his identity for them and they talk and he explains and they're like, wow. And then he reveals himself and they're like, oh, no wonder. Our, hurt, our hearts burned within us. And then just a little later, he is engaging the rest of the disciples and it's in that context that Trey read for us this morning, the passage where he says to his disciples, as he opens their minds, it's a sovereign work. As he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, he says, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Two points that we need to see from this text this, this day. And here they are. Number one, God has made a perfect provision. Because there's this universal need of forgiveness, because there is the, the crisis that, that we face, because God is a holy God and we are sinners, God has provided all that we need for us to be reconciled to him. As the disciples are discussing these events, Jesus 
explains to them, he reminds them. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, he, he goes back and walks them through all that the prophets, beginning with Moses, all that the prophets had said concerning himself. Why it was necessary that the Messiah had to come and why, what he did when he came. God has made a perfect provision. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's, he's, defi- he's describing and he's reminding that, that, that God has indeed done all that was required. For sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Now there are two important aspects of that work that we should see from this text. As Jesus is talking about this work, as he's reminding them of what was accomplished and what the prophets had said would be accomplished, he points out two things. He says, number one, it was written that the Christ should suffer. So there's this reference here to the suffering servant of Jesus. That's who he is. He, he's He's the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53 is probably one of the most clear texts on the the suffering work of the Messiah. Here he's saying it was written that the Christ should suffer. You go back to Isaiah chapter 53 where it was written and we read these words. Surely, this is Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's the crisis. All of us, all of us have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, praise God, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what this servant did. That's why it was necessary that this one, this Messiah, that was why it was necessary for him to suffer because he suffered in our place. You get to Hebrews and you are reminded of that fact. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9, verse 24 For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear into the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places, every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now you know some will quibble with this, and some want to argue, well, why was it necessary that Christ had to suffer? Why why was it necessary that, that someone had to suffer so that our sins could be forgiven? Can't just, can just God say, you're forgiven? No. He couldn't. Because he's a just God. God is full of love. He is full of grace. He is full of compassion. He is merciful. He is kind. He is generous. He is benevolent. He has all of these wonderful things. But he is just. He is righteous. And he is a good judge that will deal with sin. And he has. 
in his son. The crisis we face is facing a holy God who is just. And it's a crisis for you because our sin must be dealt with. God is not a sweep under the rug kind of God. We like to be that kind of people. Let's just ignore it. Let's just pretend things never happened. Let's just avoid the awkwardness of, of someone's disobedience or their sin. God's not that way. He's holy, he's just, he's good, and he says, you must give account to me. And that's true of every single one of you in this room, by the way. You, not the, don't, don't think about the people around you and think, well, yeah, I'm glad. They've got to stand before, you have to stand before God. You. You will stand before a holy God and give account to him at the end of your days. How will that go for you? The good news is, is that if you're in Christ, it will go marvelously for you. Couldn't be a better day. But if you're not in Christ, it will be a terrible day for you. Christ has suffered. Without the shedding of blood, we're told there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why he had to suffer. That's why he had to die, so that his blood would be shed for your sins, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that your sins could be covered, and so that you could be reconciled to God. Some want to believe that God isn't truly just and that he will just forgive us without requiring our sin to be judged. But friends, again, that is not true. The beautiful reality about the cross is that it was the perfect wedding of justice and mercy coming together in one glorious event where the justice of God was being executed for our, our sin was being executed. Justice was being served, our sin on Christ and mercy demonstrated as he laid down his life for us. Great classic on the work of the cross written by John Stott. Stott kind of got confused later in his life on some other things, but the cross of Christ is one of the greatest works that you can read outside of the Bible on the atonement. I highly commend it to you. It's in that book that Stott said this. He said, all inadequate doctrines of the atonement are due to inadequate doctrines of God and man. If we bring God down to our level and raise ourselves to his, then of course we see no need for radical salvation, let alone for radical atonement to secure it. When, on the other hand, we have glimpsed, we have glimpsed the binding glory of, whole, of the holiness of God, and have been so convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit that we tremble before God and acknowledge that we are namely hell-deserving sinners, then and only then does the necessity of the cross appear so obvious that we are astonished that we never saw it before. The cross of Christ is the means by which your sins are forgiven. And friend, there is no other way. This is it. If you want your sins forgiven, this is it. Christ, he died. Trust him. Second, he's, also, he's the suffering servant we see in the text. 
that it was written that Christ should suffer, but on what? The third day rise from the dead. So he's also the triumphant king. He's the suffering servant brought low, died in the place of sinners, but he's also the triumphant king who defeated death and secured our victory. Not only was it required that he was to suffer, but the scripture clearly taught as well, as it does in the New Testament, that three days later he would, rise, he would raise from the dead triumphantly over the grave. Now, when you think about both of those, when you think about the cross and the resurrection, you should not somehow view the cross as a defeat and the resurrection as a victory. Rather, you should see the cross as the victory won, sins defeated, and the resurrection as the victory proclaimed. It's all victory. Makes me want to sing victory in Jesus, but I will spare you. Great song, you don't want to hear my tone. The resurrection is just as critical to the work of Christ on the cross. It's, it's right there. The gospel is not complete without it. Our sins can be forgiven because Christ defeated and demonstrated his victory over sin by being raised from the dead. This was God's provision. The crisis of sinners standing before a holy God can be averted because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is the good news. We believe in the forgiveness of sins because by Christ, through Christ, our sins being pardoned, substitution taking place, we can now be presented to God complete, whole, blameless. It's good news because God doesn't say, well, I'll just pretend you were never a sinner. No, he says, you were a sinner, but you've been cleansed. You've been clothed. You're now accepted. Amen. Friends, again, the possibility, the possibility is high that there's someone in this room that has not experienced that forgiveness. I don't know in here who's not experienced that saving work of Christ, but if for whatever reason you were to die today and stand before this holy God, would you have confidence? Would you? Would you have confidence standing before a holy God? I hope that the vast majority, if not everyone in here, could say yes. But there may very well be people in this room that would be like, I hope so. Wrong answer. Friend, you can know so. And the only way for you to be able to stand before a holy God with complete confidence is by being united to him in faith, by trusting him and not yourself, by looking away from you and away from the things that you try to do and looking to the perfect work that he did on your behalf and embracing that in faith and trusting and relying upon that and that alone. That is how you can have forgiveness of sins. That is how you can be adopted into the family of God. And if you've not done that, trust in Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. Embrace him. Submit to him. He's done it all. He's done all that was necessary to make you complete and whole. Look to him. Look to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, this is our hope. God has made a perfect provision. Second, second truth. We, in light of that perfect provision, in light of what God has accomplished for us through Christ, we now have an empowered commission. As Jesus reminds his disciples of the gospel, as he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Notice what he does in verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The promise he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And boy, does the Holy Spirit come in power. Jesus says, I have achieved salvation for all who would ever trust in me. Now go tell the nations about this glorious news. You've been given forgiveness. Now go tell others, beginning in Jerusalem, but to the uttermost parts of the world, about this forgiveness. Several observations about this commission. Number one, Notice the process. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, announced. The Greek word is caruso, to announce, to tell, to preach. Should be announced, proclaimed, as we're doing this morning. You've probably heard the old saying, some have attributed it to St. Francis of Assisi, and it's a well-meaning phrase, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Now, I know what the, whoever, number one, St. Francis of Assisi never said that, as far as we can tell historically. Number two, I know what that's trying to say. We ought to live our lives in such a way that the watching world says, there's something different about you. But the watching world cannot be converted by merely watching you. The Bible actually says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and following, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard And how are they to hear without someone, same Greek word in Luke that's used right here in Romans, preaching, announcing, telling. And how are they to preach, announce, tell, unless they are sent? Yes, you should live your life in a way that reflects the gospel, but friends, the gospel must be verbally communicated. It must be announced. We are called to be announcers of this good news heralds, proclaimers, that there is forgiveness and there is hope to be found in Christ. That's the process. Pretty simple. Tell people. Number two, notice the power. These are all P's just for you who need focus. The power, we don't engage in this proclamation in in, in our own power, but rather in the power of God's Spirit. Listen, listen to the men that he was talking to. These were not Harvard grads, Harvard grads. These were not men who had just graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Jerusalem. These were fishermen. No offense if you're a fisherman, I love to fish. These were tax collectors. These were common, normal men that Jesus is now saying, you go to the ends of the earth and tell people about this. How in the world were they going to accomplish that? They were going to accomplish that because the Holy Spirit of God was going to come upon them and empower them to tell the world. That's how they were going to do it. That's how you and I do it. 
Friends, it is not the persuasiveness of our lips that matter, but it is the power within our hearts that makes all the difference in the world. But then there's the plan. Jesus says that this news would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, some of you Bible scholars go, hey, that sounds familiar, Acts 1-8, right? You'll be my witnesses. You'll proclaim, right? Beginning in Jerusalem, and he expands from there. In fact, many argue that, that not just Acts 1-8, but that this section in Luke that we're looking at today is, is actually a parallel passage to the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28. And so Jesus is unpacking, not just here, but in other verses, the strategy by which we must go forth announcing this good news. And let me just say this. This is not just a geographical strategy. It's also a theological strategy. I'm calling it a theological strategy because I, I couldn't come up with a better term. Most of the time we think, geographically, when we're called to go announce, start home, go to the state, go to the nation, go to the ends of the earth. And that is true, we should, and that's, that's indeed what we're talking about here. But notice what he says. He says, this should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And I think that what, what, what Jesus is telling them here is not just a geographical reference to Jerusalem, but he is using Jerusalem almost, not, not totally, but almost metaphorically here. Because you think about Jerusalem, it was the center of everything Jewish. It was also the town in which the Messiah was arrested, he was betrayed, he was arrested, and he was crucified. This was the town that killed the prophets. This was a wicked town. We often have these holy thoughts of Jerusalem, don't we? Talk about the Holy Land, that's actually Tennessee, but the Holy Land sorry. We, we think about Jerusalem being the holy city, and it, indeed it is in a sense, but it was a very wicked, in fact, some scholars say one of the most wicked cities on the earth when Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's telling his disciples to go there first. Kind of made sense. They were already somewhat there, but that's where you begin. The point he's making is that No one, no matter how wicked they are, is out of the reach of the gospel. Even a city that had the Son of God killed is worth saving. It also meant that the gospel is necessary for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and to also the Greek. So we've been given both this geographical and theological calling. This promise is for all peoples, all nations, all tongues, tribes, peoples. Go to the nations. Friends, that means that we must be willing go to the hard places. All are sinners and need the gospel, which means that we must go to all types of people, even the most wicked and ungodly people that are on the planet. 
Jesus said in Luke 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you hear what he's saying? Missions is not comfortable. Announcing the good news is not not easy. You know, let me be honest. I think we as a church, generally speaking, have caught the geographical vision. Praise God. Seeing people mobilized, short-term, long-term, all across the world. But I'm not so sure that we fully embrace the theological part. Because that requires us going to people and to places, even locally, that we aren't comfortable going to. That we will be like, I'm not sure if I should go to that neighborhood Jesus said, that's where you begin, Jerusalem. You begin there, where they killed the prophets, where they killed the Messiah, where they slaughtered anybody that would follow him. That's where you start. That's not for super extra credit Christians. That made no sense whatsoever, but it sounded good. You you start in the hard places. And friends, let me just tell you, that the... You go to among the nations today, that the remaining peoples that have not heard the gospel are peoples that will want to behead you. It's not easy. But Jesus says we must go there. That means we must be willing to make ourselves available to every type of person who lives, even if it's risky. Jesus never called us to be comfortable. He called us to be his ambassadors beginning in Jerusalem. That's what he called us to. If you didn't sign up for that, That's what you signed up for. All peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, everyone on the planet, no matter who they are, no matter what socioeconomic level they are, no matter what color they are, no matter what language they speak, no matter what they look like or how they act, we are called to go to all of those people and to tell them how they can have their sins forgiven, just like you have. The point of this text is for Jesus to tell his disciples this, and you have received forgiveness for your sins, but that is not merely something for you just to bask in and enjoy for yourself. It is for every person on the planet. Go tell them. In his book, Follow Me, David Platt said the following. He's actually talking about these disciples that Jesus is addressing here in Luke chapter 24. And he says of these these disciples, these common men, he said this, In Jesus, these men found someone worth losing everything for. In Christ, they encountered a love that surpassed comprehension, a satisfaction that superseded circumstances and a purpose that transcended every other possible pursuit in this world. They eagerly, willingly, and gladly lost their lives in order to know, follow, and proclaim him. In the footsteps of Jesus, these first disciples discovered a path worth giving their lives to tread. Friend, have you found that path? Do you walk that same path? This is the very activity to which we are being called to join. 
We are not being called merely to experience forgiveness, though we are. But as those who have experienced forgiveness, we are now called to announce, to proclaim, to tell everyone, everyone, how they can also receive this forgiveness. As this world is filled with crises, sadly, most people in the world don't realize that their greatest crisis is yet to come as they stand before a holy God. And friend, you and I have the answer to their crisis. Why would we not tell them? Why would we not tell them? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can affirm belief this morning in the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who pardons the guilty. There's no escaping the fact that we're guilty. We're guilty. Lord, we deserve judgment. We deserve to be condemned because of our sin and rebellion against you. But God, you are are merciful, gracious. And Lord, you delight, you delight in pardoning sinners. You delight, Lord, in forgiving sin. You delight in accepting those who have turned their backs against you. And so, Father, that as we think about all of this Wonderful news. Lord, if there are any in this room at this moment who have never trusted in Christ, Lord, they continue to walk in sin. They continue to walk in their own ways. They continue to seek answers in the world. They continue to do whatever it is that they're doing. But they know that if they were to die today and stand before you, there would be no confidence. They don't know that their sins are forgiven. They don't know that they've been clothed in righteousness. And Lord, maybe they know they haven't. Father, would you, in your sovereign way, Would you, in your powerful way, show them their need for Christ? And Lord, would you draw them to yourself today powerfully, beautifully, that they may trust in you, that they may find hope in you, that they may see their sins can be forgiven once for all. God, would you draw them in that way today? Would you save them? God, you Receive glory in the salvation of any sinner. Lord, would you receive glory through granting salvation today? Lord, would you cause that to happen if there is need for that in this room today? Lord, this room is also filled with people who know the joy of forgiveness. Lord, maybe there are some today that have taken that for granted and they have not been humbled by that as of late. God, would you move their hearts? Would you help them to worship you? perhaps in ways that they've not in some time? Would you help them to go out this week, this afternoon, with a renewed zeal and passion to be heralds of this wonderful saving news? Would you mobilize us as a congregation of blood-bought sinners, that we would be mobilized to go to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our schools, telling people their sins can be forgiven, God, would you give us boldness for that? Father, we thank you so much.
thank you for the cross. We thank you for the pardon that we have. Because, Lord, none of us deserve your grace, which is why it's grace. None of us deserve your mercy. None of us deserve your love. Yet you saved us. God, help us be grateful. And help us to be a people on mission. To go tell others how they can know this hope that we share. Thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.